The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I've practiced as a geotechnical engineer for over 18 years. And in addition to practicing engineering, I enjoy mentoring young engineers and first-generation college students. I've focused on helping to increase the number of pre-college students that are interested in STEAM majors and fields. By STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Tony Amos, the Senior Vice President at GI Energy US and a recognized expert in multi-renewable solutions involving energy foundations and ground source heating and cooling solutions. We'll be talking about energy piles and more specifically about ground sourced heating and cooling solutions. Tony has been a key player within the GI Energy UK organization between the years of 2008 and 2017. And now, Endurant Energy, previously known as GI Energy US. He's involved with raising the profile of all ground sourced heating and cooling solutions, both in the UK and internationally, and at the same time, continuing research into the effects on foundations with Cambridge University. Virginia State University, Boulder University, and Texas A&M University. He actively oversaw over 50 high-profile energy pile projects in the UK. During 2017 and 2018, he worked with a world-renowned technology client in California on installing one of the largest energy foundation projects in the world at their new Mountain View campus. He has worked with many universities across the U.S., assisting them in their pursuit of achieving a carbon zero campus. Most notably is Michigan State University, where they provided a high level review outlining a district energy geothermal solution that will enable them to meet their carbon reduction goals of 60 percent by the year 2040. He is currently involved on a groundbreaking all electric office project in New York City that utilizes a ground sourced solution using energy foundations to deliver 30% of the building's heating and cooling with the remainder coming from an air source heat pump. And with that, let's jump right into our conversation with Tony Amos. Tony, welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you, Jared. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. So question for you. I already introduced you to our listeners, but if we said in your own words, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your career path and also a little bit more about what you do at GI Energy? I remember being at school, doing my O-levels, as they're called in the UK, and never really sure what I wanted to do as a career until a guy from a college, local college came into the school and started talking about civil engineering, building and civil engineering. And what really got me infused was you know, the talk about you know, building big 
things, dams, airports and bridges and things like that. And from that moment in my life, I realised that construction was where I wanted to head. Academically, I wasn't the brightest at school. I was more hands-on. So I went to college and I did a building and civil engineering diploma, ordinary level, higher level at a university in London. I started with a, a construction company working in an oil refinery as a setting out engineer. I've got some good tales of things that went badly wrong for me setting, setting it out. And that was down in a oil refinery in Southampton. And then I moved to London where I was working on a deep basement project. Um, probably my first real heavy geotechnical experience for the British Library. It had five, six basements and it was a top-down construction process, which was really interesting. It was at that time where, you know, everyone's looking around. There's a boom in the construction industry. And um, I ended up leaving that company and joining a company called Cementation, which specialised in foundations. And never really kind of sort of thought much about it. I came up against some real inspirational people at Semos. You know, guys like Ken Fleming and David Greenwood, Rab Fernie. You know, in the UK and, and, and internationally, they're, they're pretty world famous guys, world leading experts in stuff, especially Ken Fleming for me, David Greenwood in chemical grouting. And I got involved in all these kinds of projects these guys were uh, involved with. And I spent probably 15, 20 years of my life with uh, cementation and it became cementation Scansco in the UK. I moved to Hong Kong, did six years in Hong Kong with the cementation team, helping them set up the diaphragm walling team. In Hong Kong, I project managed some really enormous projects. I actually left the UK in the depths of the recession and moved to Hong Kong in 1995, two years prior to the handover, to an absolute construction fest. There were suspension bridges being built everywhere. There was the airport being built. And I was looking after some phenomenal size projects. It was just very, very eye-opening, the scale of some of the projects that were going on out there. And my two daughters were born in Hong Kong and kind of after probably a year, two years, decided it was time to head back to the UK in 2000 and rejoined the foundations team in the UK. And it was Rab Fernie suggested to me that uh, maybe... I would like to look at this uh, energy foundation solution. Um, so I grabbed hold of it. Uh, I was the champion within the uh, uh, cementation scans, as they were then called. And that's kind of where it all became. I went geothermal and I thought, you know, this is such a no-brainer solution. I'd, I'd seen geothermal works going on, drilling purpose-made boreholes down to five or 600 feet, one borehole a day. And I'm thinking, well, why can't we put geothermal loops into those building foundations? I came across and we, I did a joint study with a guy called Duncan Nicholson at Arabs. And together we really raised the profile of uh, energy foundations. And that's kind of where it all started for me. Coupled with the fact that I was closing in on a midlife crisis, I think, and I've done 25 years in um, you know, drilling holes and filling them with concrete. It was a good stepping stone into something that I suddenly thought, well, I'm doing my bit to save the planet. And the environmental issues were becoming more and more prevalent in society i was very proud to say well look you know this is a renewable energy solution and we need to be moving in this direction for the last 20 years of my life i'm actually shocked to say that i've been trying to raise the profile of geothermal solutions but predominantly my main driver has been let's use the building foundations that are being uh, installed 
to provide a significant proportion of the building's heating and cooling. It, it really is a no-brainer, especially if the foundation's deep enough and the building height isn't too tall. It makes for a great solution. I ended up leaving Cementation because what happened, what I realised was, and this is something I'm going to mention later on, is that this is where geotechnical meets mechanical, and the two need to come together quite significantly because this is a, a geotechnical and a mechanical solution. So I, I call it a geomechanical uh, solution because the two items are so connected to one another, it should never be designed the ground loops should never be designed by one party and then the mechanical system by another party. The two systems need to be talking to one another. It is so important. I've seen so many projects over the last 20 years that have gone badly wrong because you know people don't connect with one another. I joined GI Energy in 2007-8 and a couple of guys, Mike Wysocki from Thatcher, gave us a call in the UK and said, look, really like what you guys are doing. You know, can we be part of what you do? And then the next thing I know, I'm on a plane out to Chicago, meeting some pretty inspirational guys in, in, in the US. And, and that's kind of where it all started, 2010, 2011. Like I said, I feel like I'm doing my part to try and save the planet. Uh, what's going on? So it's been an exciting last 20 years of my life for sure. And, and only now are we really seeing some maybe takeoff here in the US for the type of solutions that we're trying to drive here. For me, just to see the progression, because honestly, you're talking about your career path and it sounds like multiple different careers there, you know? And it it seems like when you see the thread that kind of connects them all, it's solving problems. And then you also have this sustainability bent, which is interesting because, you know, we talked to a lot of folks about geotechnical engineering and there's obviously a lot of overlap with say environmental engineering or within traditional site civil engineering, which falls under the umbrella of civil engineering. We also hear about a lot of overlap with structural engineering, but we don't typically hear people talk about the overlap with the mechanical, mechanical electrical plumbing. With the geothermal and the ground, you know, the ground couple, you guys have to talk together. Otherwise, you're going to have serious issues in the long run. You know, as far as how you get into ground source heating and cooling solutions, I mean, do you find that you were going back to what you learned in school or was this a lot of learning on, on the ground? There's a funny story because one of my worst subjects at college, university, was fluid mechanics. I actually had to retake fluid mechanics. That's kind of come back to me. This is one of the questions you're going to ask me a bit later on is it's recognizing it's important to understand where you perform best. I did an MSc in construction project management in Hong Kong. And one of the things I learned there was that good project management is the art of achieving objectives through the actions of others. When you look at some of the projects that you end up working on, some of the really enormous projects I work on, you've got to rely on other people to deliver as well. And again, it comes back to good planning. The devil is in the detail. But that that plan, you need to be constantly checking against what you plan for, make sure you're delivering on time and things like that. It's, construction is a great uh, place to be for sure. I've got two daughters. So I'm, my eldest daughter, she's sort of half in mechanical engineering, so which is great. So I think in order to truly, you know, appreciate the geothermal solution as an energy foundation, it would be helpful if you could just walk us through geothermal as a whole. You could stay high level if you want to, but just walk us through geothermal. Like, what is the ground couple? Very simply, I mean, all we're looking to do is to exchange heat with the ground, and, and we do that by placing geothermal loops into the ground. 
over the last 20, 30 years, the US was pretty a big driver of uh, geothermal. And then it kind of lost its way a bit when cheap gas came along. But in essence, all we're looking to do is pass geothermal loops through the ground. The ground will be, once you go below, below probably 10 feet, uh, the Earth's temperature is pretty constant, between 50 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And all we're looking to do is to exchange probably 10 degrees of heat with the ground. In wintertime, we would circulate fluid running into the ground, probably 10 degrees, 20 degrees cooler than is uh, the ground. So when the loops come back into the building, they, they've been warmed up by that uh, Earth's temperature. And that small temperature difference, we can then pass that through a refrigeration cycle. It warms the, the liquid uh, refrigerant up by that 10 degrees Fahrenheit, that then pushes it to its uh, boiling point. It's then compressed and converts into a vapour. <laughs> this goes back to my fluid mechanics. You're then transferring that low-grade heat into about 130, 140 degrees Fahrenheit into the building, and you're delivering heating in a very efficient way. And similarly, in the summertime, you operate the system in reverse, and you can provide a cooling solution to the building. And because the ground is at between 50 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit, you can then um, deliver cooling to the building very efficiently. So we talk about COPs, coefficients of performance. So conventional gas-fired boiler. So for every one unit of gas uh, that you burn, you only get about 0.8 units of heat out of it. But with a, a ground source heat pump system, for every one unit of electricity or energy that you use to create heat, you can deliver four units of heat. And in cooling, it's six units of cooling. And you can see the difference then. It's that is where the real energy savings are of this type of system. It's basically fridge technology, exactly the same as the fridge in your house. It operates exactly the same methods. You bring your groceries home, you put them in the fridge, the heat is taken out of the fridge, and that's dissipated by the kind of all that piping at the back of your fridge. That piping we put in the ground. So it's very, very similar technology. It's a pretty straightforward solution. The, the key to it is understanding the building itself that you're heating and cooling and, and, and developing an energy model in a lot more detail. And, and what's been traditional ever since I've been in, involved is a mechanical engineer will work out what heating and peak cooling is for his building. And what they'll do in a heating situation is they'll probably double the, the peak load and then they've got their gas fire boiler size and that's it. What we try and do is we look at every single hour through the year 8,760 hours a year. And we will look at actually how much heating is needed, how much cooling is needed, and then we can then develop the system in that way. So when you're heating and cooling at the same time in some of these commercial buildings, residential buildings, we can take heat from a cooling process and transfer that into other parts of the building that need the heating. And when you do that, you're not then rejecting heat to the atmosphere, you're recycling and reusing. And that's the real component that we as a business hone in on and we, we try and uh, capitalize on that because that's where the real energy savings come from in addition to the savings that uh, I mentioned previously. So getting the system efficient as possible so you're not losing it. You're using whatever you're bringing up or putting back down. Yeah. So if you've got a building delivering heating and cooling, so in the summertime, what we would be looking to do be deliver cooling to the building and then any of that waste heat rather than it being going through an evaporative cooler on the roof wasting enormous amounts of water. We're talking millions of gallons of water just being evaporated from a rooftop building. We would use that heat and heat maybe a hot water for the residents. 
or a swimming pool or or something. So some of the district energy solutions that we see, especially in, in the New York area, and you know, NYSERDA here in New York is a fantastic organization. And there's some great incentives that are now offering sort of uh, district energy feasibility studies where they will pay the full feasibility and some great exciting opportunities to be here to be had here in New York. So when we talk about energy foundation solutions, like how are those different from, say, a conventional geothermal solution? There are a multitude of solutions. So we can put those geothermal loops into bodies of water, so a lake. We put them into the bottom of a lake. We can put them in horizontally and uh, football playing fields. And we've done that in schools. Very cheap solution. One of the most predominant solutions that we see in New York is where you come in and you drill purpose-made drill uh, boreholes down to 500 feet eight to 10 inch in diameter, creates a lot of spoil. But the Energy Foundation solution is one where we would simply work alongside the foundation contractor and attach the geothermal loops to uh, the building foundation uh, reinforcement and install it with the foundations. Very, very, very rarely have we ever gone back and said, well, actually, the piles are not deep enough and they need to be deeper. So we would just use the structural length of the pile. I should caveat that. I mean, the good depth of pile is probably somewhere around 60 to 80 feet. Anything shorter than that, it's probably not worth looking at an energy foundation solution, depending on what you're wanting to heat and cool. What diameter elements too small? So the smallest I've done is probably a six or eight inch diameter pile on one single loop. But then the larger the diameter, then we start to add in more loops. So the project I'm currently working on here in Manhattan, you know, the 24 and 36 inch piles, and we're putting three geothermal loops in in each. So six pipes all connected in series. So the larger the diameter of the pile, the more loops we put in. And that's connected directly to like the internal steel cage and it's lower down. How do you get it in there? I've done about close to 60 energy foundation projects. And one of the things geotechnical engineers will know is there's a multitude of foundation solutions. I've probably put a geothermal loop on almost every geotechnical foundation solution. So from precast piles, driven cast in situ, and I apologize because I'm using probably English terms, UK terms there. I know there's difference. And there's a guy called Tracy Bretman, who I'm sure a lot of you guys will know. He actually wrote me out a list of Continuous flight auger is auger displaced piles or something. You got a crib sheet, so you know this is what it's called over here. You know, depending on what side of the pond you're on, right? Yeah, it's a bit like inches and centimeters in the UK. So slurry walls, put geothermal loops into those in station uh, boxes in the UK. Large diameter, right the way up to probably eight or nine feet in diameter as well. Um, displacement piles over in uh, California. Great solution. The, the, the solution there was uh, we put 3,000 energy foundations in over there. The original solution there was to drill boreholes, and they had highly contaminated ground. And they were going to, the concern was they were going to drag contamination down into lower aquifers. Whereas the displacement pile solution, as, as you guys, all, I'm sure, know, as you're drilling down, the material is being forced into the ground around the pile and the auger tools. The grout is then pumped in as the augers are uh, removed. And then you've got a single bar that was being installed down to 120 feet on 3,000 piles. Fantastic project that I was involved with in 2017. Big campus facility that was going to deliver all the heating and pretty much all the heating and cooling to the building. 
And again, it just shows the benefits of this type of solution. You, you've then not got a, another technique on site. You've got, not got another uh, set of equipment generating piles and piles of drilling material, slurry. It's simple. You get the coordination right on these type on an energy foundation solution, and there should be no impact on the construction schedule. And that's one of the biggest things that, that we see. It's a pretty straightforward solution. Do you find yourself putting them in the mat as well? Like if you had a thickened mat or a thickened raft, does it make sense to have them horizontal? So I know in Europe they do a lot of that. But when in our analysis, we tend to find that it actually doesn't provide much in the way of additional benefit. And if you do, you'd be probably heating a room. And in heating the room, the ground below it is then going to get cold. So you've got condensation issues. So you then go add sort of insulation, an insulation layer which could become a, quite a significant additional cost. I've always felt that you, what, for the amount of effort you put into the horizontal loops in the, the raft slab, it would be too costly for the amount you get out of the loops. What we have done in those situations, we have drilled purpose-made boreholes if there wasn't a foundation solution uh, detailed for that. So I'm sure there's a listener that's saying, wow, we should just do this on every foundation, but... You know, what are some of the hurdles that can prevent this from being a solution for every foundation? The biggest hurdle, we're always being asked, well, what's the payback of this kind of solution is one of the hurdles. And the biggest issue we come up against is when we, you know, this is what it would cost compared to a business as usual type case. And gas costs in the Midwest are so low that it's difficult to show a payback less than probably 15 years. I would say that's probably the biggest hurdle we have. The second hurdle is the kind of, you know, the mechanical engineering guys that are driving the solution that are not familiar with this technology. And they've spent their life sort of designing and building gas-fired boilers for heating and rooftop units for cooling, VRF, variable refrigerant flow. So people are very stuck in their ways. And what you see is a developer will go to their tried and tested mechanical engineer, and he will come up with a solution that he knows, and they're very reluctant to change. But what we're seeing now is there's a big drive, especially in New York. I mentioned the NYSERDA incentives for moving towards geothermal solutions. I'm now based in New York myself purely because I see the NYSERDA incentives, the PON 4614, as it's called, as being an absolute game changer in New York. We've got local law 97 coming in in New York, which is if you're using gas-fired boilers by end of 2025, you know some of these building owners are going to incur some pretty big penalties for CO2. So there's a big shift, and it's not been the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. You know, trying to sell one of these solutions, it is a long game, and I would say it's probably an 18-month discussion. You know, I do a lot of business development. That's my my role within GI Energy largely. And to go out there and meet people and trying to persuade them, well, look, this is where we need to be going. You know, the project I'm currently working on with Heinz 561 Greenwich is an absolutely fantastic project where you've got, and it's a Langham project. And yeah, Langham were the guys that sort of got us involved here. You know, 120 feet deep piles, 14-story building. We're delivering 40% of the building's heating and cooling, which is a massive chunk of heating and cooling. When you combine it with an air source heat pump solution, you've got an all-electric building. And you know what we're building at, uh, on this project is the type of building that should be built everywhere. On a city centre site, there is no alternative but to look at the foundations 
and the Energy Foundation solution as, as part of a carbon reduction solution. If you have to drill that deep and you have to put that volume in the ground to support your building, if you can tinker with it a little bit, if you can adjust it just a little bit to take care of the ground couple, it could be a win for everybody, environment and people that are be in the building as well. So that's awesome. I was just going to come back to the, the last hurdle is the technical and the mechanical disconnect. And, and certainly here in New York, you've got lots of parties doing little bits of the, the, the solution. This is a kind of solution that needs one party to then oversee all this being brought together. That's another hurdle that I see in this type of solution. We're slowly changing things. NYSERDA, as I said, is a great incentive. And I'm seeing there's going to be a big shift, very quick shift now. So if you're looking at it from a feasibility standpoint, that's early enough in the project to see if it makes sense, if it doesn't make sense, and then making sure that all the right people on the team have bought into this, right? And so it's not forgotten. You don't want to get to the point where it's time to do foundations and we didn't buy the loops, right? We have to make sure that all parts are, are looking at this. And, and now is there a testing afterwards to see how well the system has worked after four, five, six years? How does that work? One of the things that we're doing on the projects that I'm working on is we've put a lot of instrumentation into three piles. It's going to monitor the temperature through various levels. We've got a, a monitoring device that will be recording what's actually being demanded of the building in terms of heating and cooling. So that energy profile that I mentioned earlier is an absolutely crucial part of the design of the geothermal solution. And I've listened to many developers that said, oh, well, are the energy models never right. So I'm thinking, well, you're not obviously using the right kind of people. And it's kind of like a get out of jail free card. It fundamentally, it's the holy grail of what we do. So the Greenwich Project, what we're looking at doing is we're going to develop, a, we'll end up with a, an energy profile throughout the year for heating and cooling. And what that will enable us to then do is to then look at, can we deliver more heating? Can we deliver more cooling from the foundations? But importantly, what that control system will be doing, will be looking at the air temperature and the ground temperature and what's going on in the ground loop. And when the air temperature is a certain point, it could be slightly cooler than the ground. This morning in New York, it's been a very hot day. So they'll be looking for predominantly cooling at this time of the, the year. But it could be that the air temperature first thing in the morning is cooler than the ground which means that an air source heat pump solution would be doing less work. So that means the efficiency of the air source heat pump will be more efficient than the ground source heat pump. So we can then send a signal to, okay, let's use the air source heat pump. And then as the air temperature is rising and it goes beyond the ground temperature, we can then send a signal to the heat pumps to then change to the, using the ground and things like that. Once we have that energy model, we can then start playing around with the ground and the foundations and making them work harder. So it could be that, you know, in the winter time we can deliver more heating. We cool the ground down such that come the summertime we've got a much cooler ground and we can then deliver a lot, lot more cooling. That's kind of where we're going with this more solution. So again, with the fridge analogy, right, you're just changing the knobs on the fridge, right? You have a very smart building there. A very smart building. And the controls are pre-programmed. So the idea is, is that maybe after 18 months, we go back, we then check what we originally designed. Okay, this is the actual energy model we're actually delivering. This is the, the true picture. So we're comparing that against what was designed. And then also at the performance of the ground loop, we can then start playing around with it. It's a bit like a graphic equalizer. I mean, 
I could never understand my stereo when I was a kid. You know, all these levers. You can put algorithms in your control uh, box that work out what's the most energy efficient way of delivering heating and cooling at a precise moment in time. And that is crucial to where we're going here. And most of these buildings will be, they shouldn't need a lot of management once you've got that fixed. And what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to dial into that system remotely and see how it's performing over time. And, and maybe after the two years are up, we've got a good profile of what's going on. And we can start to uh, make sure it's it's working as it was designed. And the beauty of that control system is that we can then look at outperforming what we thought in terms of CO2 savings, energy savings for the building owner ultimately is what we're trying to achieve. So those are the kind of the measures that we were putting in place to check what we do. And then for the geotechnical engineer that's listening, from a design standpoint, is there anything the engineer has to be thinking about for the long-term integrity of the pile, reduction in capacity? I mean, we're talking about small loops in the pile, so there shouldn't be, but is there anything they need to be worried about if you introduce your loops into their pile? Interesting, a good comment, because one of the first things, when we tried to raise the profile of this back in 2003-04, a lot of geotechnical guys were saying, well, what happens? Are you going to freeze the ground and all that kind of stuff? And there were horror stories of geothermal loops, boreholes, and especially horizontal loops. There were playing fields. They became ice skating rinks because they were freezing up. That is a sign that a system is not working. That is a sign the system has failed. So going back to the control system, ultimately, we, we don't want to do that. And as a result, I, very luckily, with going back to the cementation Skanska days, uh, we did a great study. Uh, we got Cambridge University involved and the cementation team, and we did a four to six week. We load tested a pile. We put geothermal loops in it. We had uh, fiber optic cables in there from Cambridge University. And we monitored what happened to the pile over time. We actually tried to freeze the pile, but we couldn't get the, the ground below freezing after probably three foot or four weeks of really trying to freeze the ground. But you get the contraction, you get the expansion. And what we found was we the pile shifted by, I think, if I remember rightly, five or six millimetres. We then switched the heat pump to heat mode. And what we saw was the expansion and the five miller settlement became three millimetres of settlement. We culminated in demonstrating for all the strain gauges that we put into this pile, there was nothing untoward and putting geothermal loops into the foundations was shouldn't have any detrimental effect. What you don't want to be doing is putting in too many loops. And one of the things that we say is that you know, the loop goes down, it comes up. And as long as you've got probably a foot and a half between flow and the return, Generally, then you've got adequate space around the circumference of the piles for an effective uh, geothermal solution. That's kind of a, you know, going back to the diameter of the pile, the pile get bigger, we, we, we would add, uh, add loops for sure. The only thing that you might want to check is the, the compressive strength of the concrete's not affected by the reduction in loops. I think that was the only check that we would suggest. Coming back to the controls, Looking at the whole system holistically and not leaving the mechanical engineer just to run your foundation, energy foundations, is a critical piece. And having that control strategy that's monitoring what's going on and ensuring that you're not overheating and not overcooling. What will happen is the, the heat pumps themselves will default before the ground loop fails. What is the future hold for geotechnical engineering? 
a lot of really exciting new materials, phase change materials, polymers. So I think there's going to be a lot of development. Well, there already is a lot of development in, in, in on that side. I kind of like the idea of a lot of uh, some of the grout is recycled materials. Just walking around site today, seeing the amounts of materials, I'm thinking, well, a lot of plastics, maybe we should be using a lot of more of that just to, you know, rather than going into landfill sites, there's potentially the opportunity to reuse that. But one of the things that came back to my cementation days was that one of the guys, especially in London, we're seeing third, fourth generation buildings going up in the city of London. And one of the things that was becoming an increasing problem was that piles in the way and you're getting more piles in the way. So I don't know whether Langans have that. I've come across that. But some of the city sites, you know, you've got third, fourth generation. Okay, you've gone from timber piles, which are you can extract easy enough. But then all of a sudden you're getting these big concrete piles that are not, they're in the wrong place. And it's very, very expensive to core those out. Rab Fernie uh, from Cementation was key driver of reusing building foundations. And through our QAQC kind of processes these days, there should be no reason why you know, some of these foundations shouldn't be reused. I think there's an insurance aspect of it was the biggest hurdle, but I think you keep good records, concrete details and, and things like that. You know, we're going to see a lot of that being considered for sure. And also, you know, if you've got geothermal loops in it, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be able to reconnect those loops for the next generation of building. We did a study with Arabs. We put geothermal loops in the Crossrail stations in London. And one of the things we had to demonstrate was the design life was 150 years. So we demonstrated with Arabs that the geothermal loops would be certainly around for longer than 150 years. Reuse of foundations is something, certainly in city centre sites like New York, where you're starting to get third, fourth generation of buildings. Some would say, well, that, that doesn't make good economic sense to me as a foundation contractor. To a developer, I think it's going to become quite important as we see buildings go up. Like Hong Kong, you know, buildings were going up and buildings were being demolished within sort of less than 20 years. You know, one of the things that upset me most recently was somebody phoned me and said, oh, well, there was a building I worked on back in probably 1992 or something. He says, your name's, you were the project manager on that job. Yeah, I was. He said, well, it's being demolished and they want to know, looking for the foundation details. I'm thinking, I'm starting to feel old because that is 25 years old. And uh, that was a, an amazing project. It was a project in London where we had to put a secant wall, pile wall all the way around a, a public house because they thought Sir Christopher Wren had designed the arches in the basement of this building. And we had to excavate all, all the way around the perimeter of this building. The building was, ended up being in the middle of, I think we excavated probably 30 feet around it. And we had anchor bars going across. And oh, it was a, one of those projects that was a, a, a big headache. But we achieved it. And, and you know, I went back probably five or six years later and had a drink in, the, in this pub, which was rather unassuming. And why did they bother? <laughs> They're now demolishing projects I was working on. I'm, that makes me feel like me. I've not seen that yet, but with time, I guess that could happen. So it comes back to the reuse of foundations piece. And that, that was what they were wanting to do. And they, they said, my name was, I was the project manager on it. Did I have the record? I didn't keep things like that. This is in the days before, uh, you know, laptops. So. A hard copy in somebody's desk somewhere. Yeah, the QAQC, you know, it should be in a box somewhere.
It should be. Pull it up in the archive, right? That's great. Well, this is a good point to stop, but we're going to um, come back in just a minute and close this one out with Tony in our Career Factor of Safety in segment. Stick around. Welcome back. It's time for our Career Factor of Safety in segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Tony Amos. Tony, you've had an already very successful career. When you look back at your career, what's one thing you've implemented in your career to give yourself a factor of safety? I thought about this at length. I think it's being diverse, being open-minded, I was never a designer. I was never an estimator. My, my focus, my role was a project manager, and my skill was bringing all those people together. It's being open to new ideas, having enough skills. I mean, I spent time in estimating. I spent time in the design. So I had a good all-round sort of overview of what I was doing. It's being having the ability to find something you enjoy but having a backup plan to do something else. So I'd be quite happy to be an estimator, but I think I'd get uh, bored of sitting at a desk all, all the time. I'm the kind of person that likes to be on the move, different scenery all the time. One of the things I really enjoyed about my early career was the fact that I was on site for probably maybe a couple of months and then I was on to another site. And what I really liked about it was sort of a lot of the UK that I'd never visited before. But yeah, I'm sort of estimating a bit of design and my knowledge grew. Listen, and I think I mentioned some of the kind of inspirational characters in my life. There's people like Ken Fleming, Rab Fernie, David Greenwood. At the time, I didn't realise that they were as individuals in the foundation, the geotechnical world, their can-do attitude. And when there was a problem, we had a problem, we are on the project, you know, you could go and talk to those guys and they always had a, a good answer, a good solution behind you. So it's kind of being open-minded, broad-minded, whatever you want to say. And you know, I think that, that for me has been quite an important way of life. What we do as geotechnical engineers are kind of dealing with the unknown. So that, that's a great nugget of truth there. Well, Tony, thank, thank you, you so much for coming on the show and thank you for sharing the insights that you shared. A uh, lot of information here to unpack and good advice to our listeners. Now, if a listener wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to find you? Social media, an email, what, what can you share with us? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm happy to talk to young engineers. Mentoring is a great uh, thing to do. Young people today need to be open-minded and I'm very approachable. So yeah, LinkedIn, I think you've probably got my email address. Yeah, we can put that up. So we have changed our company name, I should mention, from GI Energy to Endurance Energy. But my email address still works. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tony. This was awesome. Absolute pleasure. Doing a great job, Jared. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 24, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. 
The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.